Bible, 1014 in the Pew Bible. I said to myself this morning, as you're turning there, I said to myself this morning, I'm not sure, I've got a lot to say this morning in my sermon. How am I going to find time to do so? Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. We do less songs. <laughs> I like singing, too. Um, I have a lot to say this morning. <laughs> so, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21, there's a lot in this text. And even as I prepare to preach it, I recognize as I was prepping this that this is a, there's a lot here. It's a long passage. I need to maybe only take a couple of verses again. So, here we go. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that as we hear these words, that you would take them and plant them deep into our hearts and minds, that we might receive them, that we might think deeply upon you and upon your word, so that we might act in obedience and holiness towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Devotion. To devote to something means to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or cause. People devote themselves to all sorts of things. They invest time, energy, and resources into their work, into their families, to a cause, perhaps a specific cause. Even today, we see people devoting to certain causes in our own world today, to something that they value. And when we think of devoting to something, it's often for the sake of accomplishment or achievement or receiving something as a result. But what's interesting in the Bible, and the way that God calls us to devote to him, it's not so that we earn something. It's because something has already been accomplished for us. And in our text this morning, Peter calls the Christians to a life of devotion to God, a life that is devoted to God. And he does this on the basis of what God has already done for them in Christ. I'll unpack this further. There are three main commands that we see in our text that reveal what it looks like to have a life that's devoted to God. 
And you can see this in your outline. So first, a call to hope. A call to hope. So notice verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, right? We always ask, what is it there for? Therefore, in light of verses 1 through 12, in light of this great salvation, in light of the fact that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an end-time inheritance, to a future salvation, even though we experience, even though they're experiencing present trials, and when we, but when they look at their present circumstances, they see the privileges, the time in which they live. They recognize their privileges because salvation has now come to them. We have experienced this. In light of all of this, therefore, here's how Peter expects the church to live. And first, he calls the believers to set their hope fully on future grace, which will be given to them when Jesus returns. Because we are born again to a living hope, we are to set our hope fully on the grace that we be, will, we will be brought to us at the revelation and return of Jesus Christ. And we've, we've observed this word hope before. It refers to a certain expectation and a confidence in what will happen in the future. It's not wishful thinking but a confident expectation that we will receive grace when Jesus returns. So the question now is how do we set our hope fully on this future grace? How do we set our hope on what happens to us at the return of Jesus Christ and what we will receive at his return? So Peter gives us two ways in which we set our hope on this future grace. Imagine a runner. Okay, maybe that's hard to imagine. I don't know. Imagine a runner dealing with all the problems that they have in a race. Present trials. But he, he's looking forward to the finish line. He's hoping to finish the race and end well. And yet, in his mind, he says this. My feet are sore. My calves are cramping up. I've got this pain in my side. What is this? It just won't go away. I need some water. I'm thirsty. I've got sweat dripping into my eyes. And their mind tells them, I used to be a runner. I know this feeling. Their mind tells them, give up. Give up. It's not worth it. Most battles are won or lost in the mind. Which might be why Peter explains how to set our hope on this future grace. How? By preparing our minds for action and by being sober-minded. That's what he says here. First, we are to prepare our minds for action. The phrase is literally, gird up the loins of your minds. Gird up your loins. 
It's the custom in that day is that people wore long robes, right? And so they would pull the material between their legs and then they'd wrap it and tie it around their waist, often to prepare for running or to do strenuous activity or work. And this imagery, as you know, is, is found in the Exodus. And Peter's probably picking up on this as well. In Exodus 12, after the nine plagues that came upon Egypt, God threatened one more plague, the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were warned about this. They were to partake of the Passover meal and put the blood of the lamb on the, on the doors of their houses, on their doorposts. And here's how they were to eat this meal. Exodus 12, 11. In this manner you shall eat, with your belt fastened, and that's literally your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So the idea here is that they were to be prepared They were to be intentional and ready to leave Egypt when told to go. They were to respond to God's act of deliverance quickly. So in a similar way, to prepare our minds for action or to gird up the loins of your minds means that we are to be intentional in our thoughts. We are to engage our minds in action and and for serious work. We are to be disciplined thinkers. To prepare our minds for action requires effort, concentration, and intentionality. So to obey this call to set our hope fully on this grace that we will receive at the return of Christ, it will not happen if we we are not intentional in our thoughts, if we are not putting effort and concentration into it. So what's the problem with this? Sometimes we wrongly think that we are passive spectators in a life that is devoted to God. Right? We, we, think, we might think to ourselves, I, I'm saved, and now I don't need to put any effort into growing in Christ. Or, I, I'm saved, and, and, and God is just, he's going to do all the work in making me like Jesus, and I don't have to do anything. Or, I'll just let go. I'll let God do all the work in me. That's not what we see here in the Bible. Rather, setting your hope on Christ and the grace that you will receive at the return of Christ happens by engaging our minds, by preparing our minds for action. We are not passive spectators, but active participants. We don't drift into a life of holiness. We don't drift into a life devoted to God. Just as people don't drift into physical fitness, so also people don't drift into spiritual fitness. It takes effort, it takes intentionality, it takes concentration. Or think about someone learning a, learning a musical instrument, right? piano. My daughter, wants to, my daughter wants to play the piano. I recently, actually this, just this morning, I looked up what it, what it takes to learn how to play the piano and the steps to learning. 
You read something like this. Study the notes. Learn the scales. Practice, 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 over and over. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you get the idea. She won't wake up one day with the ability to just start playing the piano unless God somehow miraculously did that in her. Uh, it takes effort and intentionality to do it. To prepare our minds for action means pulling up our sleeves and preparing to get to work. The second way here that Peter describes how we set our hope on this grace that will be ours in Christ at his return is by being sober-minded. We might think of this in terms of not getting drunk. We are sober. That's part of it. That's not the whole thing. He's not merely saying avoid drunkenness. Although that's true. You should avoid drunkenness. But the idea here is that we, we aren't to have a, a mind that is impaired. We, we are to avoid spiritual drunkenness, so to speak. That our mind is not filled with the things of this world that impair and distort our view of God and what he would have us do. And it's easy to fall into this trap as we constantly sip on the things of this world. So how do we prevent this from happening? Right? We drink in the world all the time. Social media, friends, people we talk to at work. How do we prevent this from happening? How do we be sober-minded? Well, we fill our mind with God's thoughts, with his word. We, we cling to the promises of God. We read our Bible we meditate on it. We spend time in prayer. We attend Sunday mornings. We attend Wednesday nights. We get into small groups or discipleship relationships. We intentionally consider what we are taking in and observing or hearing. Right? So there's intentionality to, to what we are taking in. And we help our children. We can help our children do this as well. We help them think about what honors and pleases the Lord in our own day-to-day -day life, how we respond to what they might hear, how to help them respond to what they hear or what they see or what they're being taught or what they desire and what makes, and we are to make God's agenda our priority. And we do all of this actively, actively, not in order to earn God's favor or become his child, but because we are his child. There is an expectation of the children of God to act like their father. And that's what we see in our second point. Notice on your outline, my second point, Peter gives us a call to holiness. We are called to be holy. So look again at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter now moves from the command to, to set their hope on what's coming to an exhortation for the believers to be holy in all their conduct. What does it mean to be holy? Why are we to be holy? 
Peter unpacks this idea of holiness, in a, in a sense, by, by showing us the opposite of holiness in regard to how we conduct ourselves. And he urges us not to act a certain way since we are God's children. Notice again verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. So to be holy involves not conforming to our former passions, not conforming to the passions of our former life, former lifestyle. Our former ignorance is a reference to our life before we became a Christian, before we became a follower of Jesus. As an unbeliever, we were at one time, we walked in darkness and we were ignorant of the ways of God. The Gentiles were often described in this way of living in ignorance. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say, Paul says this, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So Peter acknowledges that the believers must not conform to the way they used to live. So holiness requires and demands a change in one's lifestyle from the former way that we used to live when our actions were shaped and molded by our desires and we, we gave in to our desires. We gave in to our sinful tendencies. We gave in to patterns and behavior that the world would accept. This is what it looks like to be holy. It means to be separate and set apart from sin for a life devoted to God. This is what we see in this call to be holy in verses 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. Our holiness displays his character. Like father, like son. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is who God is. He is set apart. He is distinct from all others. And as his children, we should display his character in all of our conduct. This means... That holiness isn't something that we focus on or only do on Sundays or Sunday morning when we come to church. This isn't about just having a quiet time or a devotion life to God and just reading the Bible. I read my Bible, now I'm holy for the day. It's not about checking off a list as though your life is divided into to compartments and they don't relate to, other, to each other. Right? Have you seen those little, those little lunch boxes? Imagine your life as one of those little lunch boxes that has these little compartments. And we think, all right, this part's God, for God. This part is my own time. This part's my family. This part's my job. This part's my entertainment. That's not what holiness looks like. Rather, it's more, I've heard it described like this, more like chicken pot pie. Right? It's all blended together, it's all mixed in, you get all of it. 
Or it's like a shake, right? You blend it all together, right? God is to be involved in all areas of our lives. We are to devote to him in all areas of our lives. Every relationship that we are in, everything that we do, we are to be holy. And so this is a question I I think we can challenge ourselves with as we apply this. What does this call to holiness look like in the different areas in my life? In what areas in my life am I conforming to the passions that the world would accept? What does it look like to live set apart and distinct from the world around me? It's really a question of of this. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Is there an area in my life where I have not given him dominion and reign? To be holy is a call to a life of total devotion to God in your relationships, in your jobs, in your interaction with people at stores, in your finances, in raising children, in your entertainment, in your desires, in what you enjoy, in what you think, in the way you deal with difficulty and suffering, in the way we do church life and ministry. There is no area that should be outside of God's control. He is to sit on the throne of our hearts and lives. And this is what we see, even with the Old Testament passage that that Peter is referring to, that he's likely referring to. In verse 16, he declares, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's many passages in Leviticus that this text is probably coming from, or could come from. Maybe Peter's referring to one specifically, although it's not entirely clear. You might have a note in your Bibles that says it's from Leviticus 11.44. Leviticus 11.44. Here's what we read in Leviticus 11.43-45. through 45. I'm going to just give you a little context here in which this command prob- possibly comes from. Leviticus 11.43-45. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So there it is. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So this call to be holy for I am holy is found in the context of the dietary laws in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. There were certain foods that Israel could not eat. These were unclean. The the swarming things, the, the rat, the mice, the lizard, the gecko, the chameleon, or other swarming bugs. 
Why they would want to eat these in the first place, I have no idea. That confuses me, but that, that's beside the point. We see here in Leviticus, and then we see in Leviticus 19, 2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Leviticus 20, verse 26, in the context of verse 23, You shall not walk in the custom of the nations that I am driving out before you. And then verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So what's the point? What's the point of giving God's people these, these, this command to be holy, even in the context of what they ate? One commentary describes it this way. By following God's laws, the Israelites would set themselves apart from the other nations as the Lord's holy people. In Israel, all of life became an opportunity to show loyalty to the Lord, even in terms of what they ate. The idea is that Israel was to be constantly attentive to God's word and the way he wanted them to live. Because it reminded them of who God is and it enabled them to stand out from the other nations. You recall that God's people, they were to be a blessing to the nations. That God's salvation might reach, reach to the ends of the earth. They were to be a light to the nations. And how would this happen? Through their holiness. Through their set-apartness. Through their distinction from the nations. Because it revealed the God that they served and loved. And that, that's a call for us as well. If we want to make a difference in our communities or with the people that we interact with, instead of conforming to them, we are called to conform to Christ and be set apart. Not, not, in, a strange, not in a strange way or even judgmental way, but in a way that attracts them to Christ. Revival begins in the hearts and lives of God's people first as they pursue holiness in all their conduct. If we act just like the world and we add Jesus to a person's life, why do I need Jesus? There's no difference. Practically, Practically speaking, Peter is going to use the rest of his letter to show what this looks like and how we should conduct ourselves in various relationships and situations that we go through. And you'll see this as we, as we continue through the book, even in the way I outline the book in the months to come. So we are called to be holy. Let's live holy lives, distinct and set-apart lives in all that we do. Third and finally, we're given a call to fear. We are called to fear. Ultimately, we are called to fear God. So look with me at verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter now moves from this command to holiness to to a call to fear. In Leviticus 19, I read verse 2 to you already regarding the call to be holy because God is holy. Verse 3 is interesting. In Leviticus 19.3, it's interesting because after talking about holiness, he moves to this. Leviticus 19.3, Every one of you shall revere, fear, respect his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So after mentioning holiness... He brings us the command to fear one's father. And as believers, as God's children, we are called, we call God our heavenly father, don't we? And if we call, if we call on God as our father, then we need to conduct ourselves a certain way throughout the time of our exile, which is a reference to our time here on earth. If God is truly your father, then you need to fear him. And we especially saw the fear of the Lord and fearing God in our series in Ecclesiastes. To fear God is to have a reverential awe of God. To fear God means that we stand in awe of him. It means we take God seriously. To revere him means to honor him, to, to worship him, to center our lives on him. To fear God describes our attitude before God. And there's a sense in which fearing God as our Father means that we want to do what pleases Him. Right? We see here that God is our, He's the judge. He judges each person according to what they have done. He does not show favoritism. Sometimes we have a tendency to think to ourselves, well, God is my Father. God's my Father, now I can live however I want. Having God as our Father does not give us a license to sin. Rather, we should strive to honor Him and do what pleases Him. And Peter gives some of the reasons why we should conduct ourselves with fear. So notice again verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The believers have been ransomed. They have been purchased from the futile ways of their forefathers. They were bought back by payment of price. That's what the word ransom means. They were bought back from an empty life, the futility of life, the vanity of life. The vanity of life under the sun, which was evident in Ecclesiastes. They were purchased from seeking to find meaning and value and satisfaction and ultimate satisfaction from the things that their fathers or generations before them pursued. That's what Solomon 
observed even in Ecclesiastes, the futility or the vanity of, of knowledge, of pleasures, whether it's what we consume or what we have or what we do, the vanity of our work, the vanity of our wealth and possessions, the vanity of trying to leave a legacy. It was all empty. It was empty. They could not bring ultimate meaning or satisfaction to the one who pursues them. These things are often greatly valued by people in our world today, and sometimes we are tempted to continue to seek value in these things. But in the end, they do not satisfy. They are vain and futile. And it's this empty way of life that we have been purchased and ransomed from. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, which, which would have been the most costly and precious items, which he describes here as perishable. We have been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we are to conduct ourselves with fear because we have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God without blemish or spot. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. His blood was poured out for us. He is our substitute and we are ransomed. We have been purchased by his blood. Therefore, we should live in a way that honors him and honors God and stands in awe of God because he sent his son for us to redeem us from our former way of life. So to act in a way that doesn't bring him glory and not conducting ourselves in fear would be to devalue and minimize the cross. Have you thought about that? Conduct yourselves with fear because here's what God did for you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And he came at an appointed time in history to die on the cross as our substitute. He purchased us with his blood. And so to not act in a way that honors him and not act in a way that fears him is to devalue and minimize the cross of Christ. It's to minimize the price at which we were purchased. But because of him, and what he's done for us, our faith and hope is in God through Jesus Christ. God's purpose in sending Christ to die and rise again is so that we would put our faith and hope in him. So as we close, is your faith and hope in God as a result of Christ's work? There's a call for unbelievers here. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is a call for you to consider Christ's death and resurrection and respond by putting your faith and hope in him. In him. And believers, this is a call for us to continually put our trust and confidence in God because of what Jesus has done for you. Christ's death, which we celebrate every day, especially this time of year, 
even as we think of Good Friday, Easter Sunday, his death and what he has done for you is the basis for which we are called to set our hope on a future grace. It is the basis for our holiness and living a life that fears God. As we think deeply about what God has done for us in Christ, might it lead us and motivate us to live a life that is completely, wholly devoted to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize the commands in Scripture to set our hope fully on the grace that's coming, to be holy, to live in fear. These commands that we are given this morning we are not to do in order to earn your favor, but because we already have received your grace and favor. And because we have receive this great salvation. We desire to obey you. We desire to do what pleases you. And so would you give us this strong desire and this passion to do what honors you because we are your children. Would you help us live distinct and set-apart lives for the sake of Jesus? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.